Hail and welcome to A is for Agrimony, Coffee Stained Notes on Witchcraft. I am Margot, and we are back to the regularly scheduled podcast of your. The October series is officially wrapped up. I had an absolutely wonderful time creating those last three episodes. It was so much fun for me. Um, To me, sat, oh, yep, there's the leaf blower. There's the leaf blower. (sighs) Okay, well, what are you going to do? Absolutely love Samhain. I hope that you all had an amazing Samhain if you celebrate Samhain. I, you know, stayed home and I did some ritual. I made a traditional, you know, Samhain feast. Um, that I sat down to eat with my husband, made an extra plate uh, of everything and a special beverage to offer on my altar. And we watched some spooky stuff on the TV and we made sure to light up our jack-o'-lanterns that are outside that we carved the night before. It was just great. It just... uh, just felt nice to be home and to do all those fun hearth and kitchen witchery things and a little bit of ritual and just bask in it. Um, so I hope that you also had an enjoyable high holiday. Um, nothing really going on in the coming week. Typically I like to cover any like full or new moons or anything like that. Uh, but we do have daylight savings coming up on Sunday, I believe at 2 a.m., And I decided to, you know, look into daylight savings. It's not a thing that I actually fully understand because I don't like it. I appreciate the darker, colder months and what they bring and that feeling of like kind of turning inward and having a a stretched out time of introspection and just, you know, getting comfy and cozy and reading a ton of books and you know, having an excuse to just stay in because it's cold and dark out. But um, I don't love the extreme darkness. I don't love losing an extra hour of daylight. And I absolutely don't love losing an extra hour of sleep in the spring when it jumps forward again. Never loved it. Not my thing. But I wanted to look into it because it's coming up. And why not? And I try to look at it from a witchy point of view. Turns out there's really not a whole lot of magic that could be involved with daylight savings. You know, that's just what I could find. That's not to say that no one might come along and, you know, figure out a way to work it into magic. And the real reason for that is, um, you know, witchcraft and pagan practices are often uh, involved in a deep connection to the natural rhythms of nature, the seasons, and the celestial events, such as the solstices and the equinoxes. So while, you know, some witches and pagans may incorporate the changing of the seasons and the lengthening and the shortening of daylight into their spiritual practices, daylight savings time itself is a man-made concept. It's a man-made adjustment to the clock and does not have any deep-rooted symbolic or ritual significance in witchcraft or pagan traditions. I mean, it could be possible that individual practitioners might find ways to incorporate daylight savings time into their personal rituals or observances. You know, this coming Sunday, we're going to have an extra hour of sleep. So maybe you might want to do some dream work, you know, some dream divination because you're going to be allotted some more time to stay in bed. Uh, I don't know. I fucking hate it. So I'm going to pretend like it doesn't exist and I'm going to be grumbling while I go around the house and change all the clocks that aren't automatically changing on their own. (laughs) Um, but I did at least find some, um, 
some folklore or urban legends associated with daylight savings time that I thought were fun. Uh, One is the myth of Benjamin Franklin. It's a common myth that Benjamin Franklin invented daylight savings time. And the story goes that in 1784, Franklin wrote a satirical essay suggesting that Parisians could save money on candles by waking up earlier to use natural daylight. However, turns out that there's no historical evidence that Franklin's essay was intended as a serious proposal for changing the clocks at all. Um, And daylight savings time was not actually implemented until many, many years later. Oh, great. My dog came to tap dance for everyone. So I've got leaf blowers and a tap dancing dog. All right, we're going to get through this. Another one is the tale of the farmers and the cows. Uh, Another popular belief that daylight savings time was introduced to benefit farmers. And it turns out this is largely a myth. The myth goes that farmers needed more daylight to work in their fields. And this is this is basically what I believed my entire life. Like this this ridiculous time adjustment was for the farmers. And I'm like, okay, well, they're growing our food, so we should just like help them out. Um, But it turns out. The idea, you know, of them needing this extra daylight to work their fields so clocks were adjusted to give them more sunlight. In reality, many farmers have been opposed to daylight savings time because it disrupts their schedules and the routines of their animals. Like you can feel that extra hour, that loss or that gain. And the next day you feel off. Now, imagine I don't think there's, you know, I'm sure there's lots of people that I'm not thinking of right now, but there aren't too many people that are as quite as regimented in their time and their schedule as a farmer. They get up super early, they work specific things, they work hard all day, every day, then they, you know, have their meals and they get their sleep because it's not the easiest schedule in the world and they stick to it and they're very regimented for that reason, I'm assuming, because I'm not a farmer. Um, But the way that daylight savings time throws me off, I can't even imagine having a very, very strict schedule that I stick to every day and then having someone just tinkering with time and screwing that all up. So daylight savings time, as it turns out, was originally introduced with other goals in mind, such as energy conservation and extending daylight areas for other various activities and not necessarily for the farmers and the cows. At least that's what I, you know, what I found when I was doing my research. I thought that was interesting. Um, And then there's finally, there's time travel stories. Um, Daylight savings time has occasionally been used as a theme in science fiction stories where time travel and alternate realities are explored. Um, That's kind of fun. And uh, in, in a lot of these stories, people often encounter strange or surreal experiences during the transition between standard time and daylight savings time. Um, I haven't actually come across any of those. Maybe I'll, I'll go looking for it the next time I uh, am looking for something to stream or something to read. But that's what I have for you. It's not very magical. Uh, it's definitely annoying for me. If you enjoy it, I apologize. I'd like to know why. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that's that. So let's get on with the moon card because we're restarting, not restarting, we're resuming Fortune and Flora today. And we're going to talk about the moon card. And we're almost at the end of the Major Arcana. Uh, In fact, I was looking at my calendar earlier and I realized we're going to wrap up the entire Major Arcana before the year is out, which is also really nice because it'll be before our one year anniversary. For the most part, these Fortune and Flora episodes have been every other episode of this podcast uh, with a few exceptions. So I wasn't really sure just where we would end up when we reached the one year mark of the pod. So when we do wrap up the Major Arcana, I'll have to decide how we should proceed. Court cards, entire suits, um, 
numerology in the minor arcana, like I would do the ones and then the twos, or we could really take our time and I could just start with one suit and go through the entire minor arcana one card at a time. Um, that's something to consider. And I would love to get feedback from anyone who would like to provide me with feedback because, you know, I, I'm doing this. I'm doing this for myself, but I'm also obviously doing it for the listeners. So if there's a specific way that you think would be the most beneficial way to explore the minor arcana, I would love to hear your opinion. And you can reach me at reach. Margo at aisforagrimony.com. Uh, or if you follow me on socials, you can, <laughs> I stopped myself before I said you can slide into my DMs because that just felt gross. Okay, let's talk about the moon card. In a nutshell, the moon card in a tarot reading signifies uncertainty, deception, hidden emotions, the mysteries of the night, and the need to trust your intuition to navigate through a challenging and mysterious situation, or a feeling of being lost and confused or uncertain of which way to go. And as a result, it encourages us to pay attention to the signs and symbols, our dreams, and above all, our intuition to see a way through this apparent darkness. But when we last left off with our fool, we were at the star, that magnificent star. So let's examine how we reached this point along the Fool's journey. As we all know, every transition from one card to the next is an important part of this journey. So the star, card number 17. The star card is a card of hope, inspiration, and guidance. It follows the tarot card, which represents a moment of sudden disruptive change or upheaval. And in the star card, the Fool has found a sense of renewed hope and inspiration after the tower's chaos. The star represents a moment of healing, serenity, and a connection to higher spiritual realms. The fool has a sense of purpose and a clear vision of their path now. It's a card of optimism and faith in the future. So the transition from the star card to the moon card can be seen as a shift from clarity and hope to a place of uncertainty and confusion. The moon card represents the mysteries of the subconscious, hidden fears, and illusions. It signifies that the fool's journey is not always straightforward and there are deeper, more complex emotions and challenges to confront. The bright light of the star has given way to the faint, eerie light of the moon, revealing hidden truths and fears that the fool must now navigate. This isn't the best analogy in the world, but I immediately think of how when we have a new path suddenly opens up before us like this star card experience we're inspired and we're filled with hope and we see the light at the end of the tunnel and we're starting to develop a plan and everything is great but then we actually have to do it we actually have to travel towards that light and follow through with what needs to be done in order to reach that goal and that's when our doubts start to slide in that's when our fears and our worries like am i on the right path after all am i am i completely delusional for thinking what I thought back in that star experience and now here I am under the light of the moon and everything feels like maybe I'm kidding myself. You know, like I said, not the best analogy in the world, but that's how I was thinking about the transition. So in this transition, the fool goes from a state of inner peace and inspiration to a phase of inner exploration and introspection. The moon card encourages the fool to delve into their subconscious, confront their fears and uncertainties, and learn to trust their intuition. 
It's a reminder that the journey of self-discovery is not always smooth and that facing shadows within is an essential part of personal and spiritual growth. Overall, the transition from the star to the moon card in the, the Fool's Journey represents a shift from clarity to mystery, from hope to introspection, from optimism to the need for a deeper understanding of the self and the hidden aspects of the journey. All right, so as we do, you know the drill. <laughs> Let's examine the imagery and symbolism shown in the card, specifically in the RWS system. So here's a breakdown of the key elements and symbolism that can be found in the moon card. The two towers. In the background of the card, you can see two towers, which represent the gateway to the unknown and the realm of the subconscious. These towers are often associated with the conscious and subconscious minds, suggesting the need to explore one's inner thoughts and emotions. And of course, we see the moon. The most prominent feature of the card is, of course, the moon itself. It is a full moon, which symbolizes the peak of intuition and emotional power. However, the moon is also surrounded by a number of watery and emotional symbols, indicating the deep, often hidden emotions that the moonlight can reveal. We also see a dog and a wolf. At the bottom of the card, you see these two animals howling at the moon, the domesticated dog and a wild wolf. The dog represents the tamed or conscious mind, while the wolf represents the wild or instinctual aspects of our nature. We are both, after all. And this duality suggests the need to balance and reconcile these two aspects of the self. Balance, 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 balance. We also see a crayfish at the bottom of the card, emerging from the water in the foreground. This creature symbolizes the deep, hidden, and sometimes unsettling aspects of the unconscious mind. It reminds us that there may be hidden emotions, fears, or desires that we need to confront and deal with, rather than keep pushing down. The path leading from the water to the mountains in the distance is winding and uncertain. It represents the difficult and winding journey of self-discovery and the unknown. This path is a reminder that sometimes the journey through our inner worlds can be confusing and challenging. Very much so. And in some cards, you may see droplets or yodes. If you look closely, you can see droplets falling from the moon. These droplets contain yodes, the 10th letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is associated with the divine spark of creation. The yodes suggest that there is a connection between the spiritual and emotional realms and that enlightenment can be found through deep emotional exploration. The moon is a complex and mysterious card. It's always been one of the most funny, I want to say confusing, and it actually deals a lot with confusion, but it's always been one of the cards that I had trouble really fully pinning down as far as like just understanding it in its fullest because it's very complex and mysterious, and it invites the querent to delve deep into their own subconscious, confront their fears and hidden emotions, and navigate the uncertain path of self-discovery. It's usually an answer that people don't want, even though it's almost always the best answer. <laughs> and the symbolism in the card suggests a need to embrace both the conscious and the unconscious aspects of the self to find a path to enlightenment and inner truth. And as always, we can find more important symbolism in the card's correspondences, such as numerology. The moon is the 18th card in the major arcana. 18 
carrying its own symbolic meanings as well. And they are independence, leadership, progress and achievement, and material and financial success. The number 18 often represents independence and self-sufficiency and is associated with individuals who are ambitious, determined, and self-reliant, often seeking to achieve their goals on their terms. It's also related to leadership qualities. People influenced by this number tend to have a strong desire to lead, take charge, and make a significant impact in their chosen endeavors. The number also symbolizes progress, achievement, and success. It suggests that through hard work and dedication, one can attain their goals and find recognition and rewards for their efforts. Material and financial success. It often signifies that an individual is on a path toward financial security and abundance. Now, in numerology, numbers are often reduced to a single digit by adding their individual digits together. And in the case of 18, it would be calculated as one plus eight, resulting in nine. And when you reduce 18 to nine, you get completion and fulfillment, universal love and compassion, transformation, and humanitarianism. The number nine in numerology is associated with completion and fulfillment representing the end of a cycle or a stage in one's life. It suggests that a significant phase is coming to a close, making way for a new beginning. Nine is also considered the most spiritual of the single digit numbers because it symbolizes universal love, compassion, and a desire to serve humanity. People influenced by the number nine often have a strong sense of social responsibility and a desire to contribute positively to the world. Nine signifies transformation and transition. It indicates that change is on the horizon and it encourages individuals to let go of the past and embrace the future with an open heart and mind. And finally, nine, associated with humanitarianism and the desire to make the world a better place, suggests a focus on helping others and working for the greater good. So to sum it up, the number 18 is associated with qualities like independence, leadership, progress, and financial success. But when reduced to nine, we have completion, spiritual growth, transformation, and a strong inclination towards humanitarian efforts. These are quite different from one another, almost complete opposites, which calls back to the moon card symbolism, pointing to the need to embrace both the conscious and unconscious, both the tamed and the wild aspects of the self. The moon card is also ruled by the element of water and the zodiac sign Pisces, as well as the moon, of course. Water is primarily due to its deep emotional and subconscious themes. Water is connected to the world of feelings, emotions, intuition, and the subconscious mind. The moon card's imagery reflects the watery, mysterious, and reflective nature of the element. The moon is also, you know, the moon is also associated with the moon itself. <laughs> the celestial body that illuminates the night sky. The moon is often linked to emotions, intuition, cycles, and the ever-changing nature of life. And this connection emphasizes the card's themes of intuition, hidden emotions, and the ebb and flow of life. And finally, Pisces, which is a water sign, is known for its deep emotional sensitivity, dreamy qualities, and connection to the spiritual and subconscious realms. The moon card symbolism aligns with Pisces' intuitive and introspection 
nature. When we go through all these steps and make our way to the interpretation of each card in a reading, we see how these correspondences add depth and layers of meaning with each individual card. And understanding these can provide additional insights when interpreting the card in a tarot reading. So what does the moon have to say when it comes up for us in a reading? The moon in a tower reading is a complex and intriguing card, as I said. Um, and it often carries profound and multifaceted meanings. And as with all cards, its interpretation can vary depending upon the context of the reading, the surrounding cards, or the question asked. However, here are some common themes that may be coming up when the moon card turns up in a reading. Illusion and deception. The moon signifies that things may not be as they seem. In a reading, this card can indicate that the querent is dealing with situations where the truth is being obscured and they need to look beyond the surface to uncover what's hidden. Intuition and the subconscious mind. The moon suggests that the querent's instincts and gut feelings should be trusted. It might be a reminder to tap into their inner wisdom when making decisions or facing uncertainties. Another is emotional turmoil, confusion, or uncertainty. The moon suggests that the querent might be going through a period of emotional upheaval, possibly fueled by hidden fears, anxieties, or unresolved issues. And the presence of the card can serve as a signal to confront and address these emotions rather than keep them in the shadows. Nightmares and fears. This card can symbolize deep-seated fears and anxieties that are surfacing at the moment. And these fears might be irrational or based on past traumas, but that doesn't make them any less important as far as the need to confront and deal with them. It advises the querent to acknowledge and address these fears in order to move forward. Duality and unconscious versus conscious. The moon card implies that there is a need to reconcile these opposing forces and integrate them harmoniously to gain a deeper understanding of oneself. It could be secrets and hidden information. Uh, the card could also suggest that there are hidden truths or secrets at play. The querent may need to dig deeper or be cautious about undisclosed information in their current situation. It could be instinct and intuition. Trusting one's instincts is crucial when the moon appears. It encourages the querent to rely on their inner guidance and intuitive faculties to navigate through uncertainties. And for that reason, it could be navigating the unknown. The card's imagery of a winding path represents the journey into the unknown. It may indicate that the querent is in the situation where they must tread carefully, taking one step at a time and accepting that the path ahead may not be clear mystery and spiritual insight. The moon card can suggest a time of personal and spiritual exploration. And the querent may be on the verge of discovering deeper truths about themselves and their purpose. Remember, I don't know if well, I say remember as if, you know, this is a conversation we just had. <laughs> a lot of people, when they experience a spiritual awakening, and you're not going to have just one during this journey through life, you're going to have several. And it's not all sunshine and roses. Sometimes it feels like insanity. And sometimes it feels like a dark night of the soul. Uh, very much like a moon card experience. And finally, we have creativity and inspiration. 
The moon's association with creative energy and inspiration can indicate a period of artistic and spiritual growth. And it could suggest that by embracing the mysteries of life, the querent can find inspiration and creativity, and it could enhance their artistic process. All in all, in a reading, the moon serves as a reminder that life is not always straightforward, and it may be necessary to embrace the unknown and confront hidden emotions or fears. And while it can signify challenges, it also offers the opportunity for personal growth and transformation through introspection and intuition. And the message being offered by this card can be both cautionary and illuminating, depending on the surrounding cards and the specific question or the situation being addressed, of course. And I have a spell to share that involves the moon card, as well as the star card, actually, um, that I'll be sharing at the end of this episode. But first, let's talk about the darkly beautiful Belladonna. Belladonna, or Atropa Belladonna, also known as Deadly Nightshade, is a highly toxic perennial herbaceous plant in the nightshade family, Solanaceae, which also includes tomatoes, potatoes, and eggplant. It can be found native to Europe and Western Asia, including Turkey, and extending into Ireland and Western Ukraine and the Iranian province of Golan in the east. But it's also been naturalized in some parts of Canada, North Africa, and the United States. And I have something that I want to read for you from Botanical Curses and Poisons, The Shadow Lives of Plants by Fez Inkwright. An absolutely beautiful book if you like to collect books because they're simply stunning to look at. Uh, but also inside, it is filled with incredible information about the darker side of the plant world. Highly, highly recommend. Let's get into it. Deadly Nightshade, Atropa Belladonna. A rich pansy it was, with a small white lip and a wonderful purple hood, and your eye caught the sheen of its leaves parrot green. Down the dim gothic aisles of the wood, and its foliage rich on the moistureless sand, made you long for its odorous breath. But ah, twas to take to your bosom a snake, for its pestilent fragrance was death. It's by John Boyle O'Reilly, The Poison Flower. Of all the poisonous plants in the world, the one with the most sinister reputation most surely has to be Deadly Nightshade. Also known as Belladonna, this member of the Selenaceae family is closely related to mandrakes, tomatoes, chili peppers, and potatoes. It is also one of the oldest recording botanical poisons, referenced even so far back as the Ebers Papyrus written in 1550 BC. The plant grows in damp, shady spots such as woodlands and riversides. The Vale of Furness in Lancashire, England is particularly renowned for its presence. It is known locally as the Valley of Nightshade, and sprigs of nightshade are a common motif carved on the seals of Furness Abbey's ruins. It also grows freely in Romania, where it is so respected and beloved that it has been given a wealth of titles. Constita, the Honest, Surisai Lupilu, Wolf's Cherry, and I must apologize for my pronunciations here, Doama Kudrulu, Lady of the Forest, and Imperatisei Brulinar, Empress of Weeds. The berries, even when green, are remarkably shiny and noted by herbalist John Gerard as a berry of a bright shining black color and as such beauty as to allure any to eat thereof. Despite their beauty, eating the berries is not advised. Though eating one might not bring death, one berry on a plant can be up to 50 times more toxic 
than one right next to it. And what may not kill the first certainly may the second. Unlike most toxic fruits, they are deeply and seductively sweet, and for this reason are seen as evil. As any dangerous plant with manners was supposed to grow its berries bitter to deter ingestion. Instead, the nightshade seeks to charm and then murder. Anyone tricked into eating the sweet fruit will likely die of it, their body protecting and nourishing the seeds after their death so that they might grow. Deadly nightshade is named Atropa in honor of the third Greek fate, Atropos. Atropos, the unturnable, was the eldest of the three Mori, the fates, the arbiters of life and death of mankind. Before her came Clotho, the spinner, who spun the thread of, of a mortal's lifespan. Then Lachesis, the allotter, who measured the thread, the length of that person's life. And Atropos, when the time came, would cut the thread with her shears. It was said that Atropos took the form of a nightshade when she was in the realm of the living. The nightshade's deadly association is well-earned. It has been responsible for countless deaths throughout history, whether intentional or not. It is rumored that the Roman Emperor Augustus was killed by his wife, Lucia Drusilla, by way of a plate of nightshade-laced figs. And more recently, it was the cause of death of noted witch revivalist Robert Cochran in 1966. Well-known are the tales of medieval Venetian ladies using drops of atropine to dilate their pupils to appear more beautiful. However, using it too frequently could allow it to travel along the optic nerve and lead to madness. Walking around with dilated pupils would also make it difficult and painful to see in the daytime, though at night it might just have improved their eyesight. But the ability to enlarge the pupils wasn't just fashionable at the time. It was also made use by early opticians prior to surgery to make their work easier and was still used by opticians until only a few decades ago. Popular belief tells that the name Belladonna, meaning beautiful lady, comes from this practice of enlarging the pupils for beauty purposes. However, there is no proof that this fashion ever traveled beyond Venice, and it has been proposed that the name may alternately come from Bona Donna, or good girl, the name given to the Italian witch doctors that the poor relied on when they could not afford access to a physician. It was believed that these witches became such by inheriting the power from another. Once inherited, the witch could not die until she found someone else to transfer it to. But most notably, Nightshade became known in tales as a plaything of witches and the devil. It was said to be beloved of and tended by the devil himself, who left it alone only on Walpurgis night when he retired to prepare for the witch's sabbat. On this night, you would be safe to dig up the roots of the plant, but the devil would leave behind a nightmare monster to protect it, which could be appeased only by offerings of fresh bread. Belladonna was one of the plants, alongside opium poppy and monkshood, believed to be used by the witches in their flying ointment that would transport them to the Black Sabbath. The ointment was not actually used for flying, but was simply a name for a mixture used to encourage hallucinatory dreaming a side effect of ingesting scopolamine and opiates. And again, that's Botanical Curses and Poisons, The Shadow Lives of Plants by Fez Inkwright. So belladonna has a long history of both medicinal and toxic use. And while it's been used in the past for various medicinal purposes, its use is highly restricted today due to its extreme toxicity and unpredictable effects. Historically, it was used for pain relief and as eye drops, as I just read in Botanical Curses and Poisons. As for pain relief, the plant's alkaloids such as atropine and scopolamine 
could help alleviate pain, particularly when applied topically as a salve or an ointment. Today, the use of belladonna is extremely limited due to its toxicity. In some cases, certain pharmaceuticals contain highly diluted forms of belladonna alkaloids, but they are carefully regulated and should only be used under the guidance of a healthcare professional. These uses may include pain management, again, motion sickness, and gastrointestinal orders. So extremely diluted preparations of belladonna are used in pain management, particularly in homeopathic remedies. However, these preparations are considered controversial and have limited scientific support. The scopolamine derived from belladonna is used in modern medicine to help prevent motion sickness and nausea. And the atropine also derived from belladonna has been used in the past to treat certain gastrointestinal disorders such as irritable bowel syndrome by reducing muscle spasms. However, its use is limited due to the side effects and the fact that there are safer alternatives available. It's crucial to note here that belladonna is highly toxic and the difference between a therapeutic dose and a toxic dose is very narrow. Ingesting belladonna can lead to severe symptoms, including hallucinations, delirium, paralysis, and death. The plant should not be used for self-medication, and any potential use should be discussed with a qualified healthcare provider. So belladonna has a rich history in folklore and superstitions associated with it. The plant's toxic properties and its historical uses in medicine, witchcraft, and mythology have contributed to its presence in various folklore traditions. Some examples of this, witchcraft and flying ointments. In medieval Europe, belladonna was a key ingredient in flying ointments used by witches and practitioners of folk magic. It was believed that applying these ointments to the skin could induce hallucinations and allow the user to fly, I'm using air quotes, to witches' sabbats or engage in otherworldly journeys. This belief is a significant part of Belladonna's folklore, linking it to the concept of witches' flights, which could, in reality, be likened to a hallucinogenic-induced trip into the astral. The Witch's Plant Belladonna is often referred to as one of the witch's plants or witch's herbs due to its historical use in witchcraft and sorcery. It was considered an essential ingredient in magical brews and potions, as well as a tool for divination and communicating with the spirit world. Protection against evil. In some European folklore, belladonna was believed to protect against malevolent forces and evil spirits, as many poisonous plants are known to do. And people would hang it over doorways or place it in windows to ward off negative energies and prevent evil entities from entering their homes. You see, I mention this very, very often when I'm going over the plant portion of Fortune and Flora. Lots of these plants ended up in doorways and windows to protect against evil, which is really interesting. I love it. Belladonna is associated with uh, nightshade lore. It is linked to other plants in the nightshade family, such as mandrake and henbane, which share similar folklore associations. These plants are frequently mentioned in tales of magic, witches, covens, and potions in medieval and Renaissance Europe. And as mentioned before in Botanical Curses and Poisons, Belladonna or Beautiful Lady. The name Belladonna itself carries folklore and symbolism. In Italian, Belladonna means beautiful lady. Uh, repeating myself and I apologize. And this name is thought to originate from its historical use by women to dilate their pupils, making their eyes appear larger and more attractive. Um, if somebody came at me with huge pupils, I don't think my first thought would be pretty, <laughs> but okay. Uh, the connection between the name and the plant's use 
in enhancing one's beauty adds an element of allure and mystique to its folklore, however. And finally, deadly nightshade as a folk medicine. Belladonna was used in traditional folk medicine for various ailments despite its high toxicity, and folk healers sometimes applied it topically in highly diluted forms for pain relief and muscle spasms, as I said. However, such practices were risky, and the plant's use in this context is not recommended. Again, Belladonna's folklore is rich and intriguing, but it's absolutely crucial to remember that the plant is exceptionally toxic and can be deadly which most definitely lends to its folkloric fame. Modern understanding and safety measures have led to a diminished use of belladonna in folk and traditional practices, as safer alternatives are available for most purposes. So belladonna is ruled by the elements of water also, as well as the planets Venus, Saturn, and Mars. Its historic use in witchcraft includes its inclusion in the flying ointment, which I just went over, as well as hexing and cursing. Some practitioners believed that its toxic nature made it a suitable ingredient for harmful spells or rituals and protection, because on the flip side, some believed that belladonna had protective properties and placing it around one's home or property was thought to ward off evil spirits and malevolent entities. Priests of Bologna, the ancient Roman goddess of war, were said to drink an infusion of belladonna prior to worshiping and invoking her. In contemporary witchcraft, there is a greater emphasis on safety and ethical considerations. As a result, the use of belladonna and other toxic plants is less common and even discouraged in some cases with safe alternatives often sought. However, some modern practitioners may still explore its symbolism or associations in their work. Belladonna's associations with mystery, altered states of consciousness, and the duality of danger and protection can be explored symbolically or used in ritual or spellwork as a representation of these concepts. And we have poisonous plant knowledge. Some practitioners study belladonna and other poisonous plants for educational purposes. Its knowledge can be applied to better understand plant lore, herbalism, and folklore, history, magic, and much more. Other magical uses include astral protection and the production of visions. But again, due to its high toxicity levels, many practitioners seek safer alternatives in order to avoid accidental poisoning. Rather than interact with it directly, some practitioners have been known to place a dried plant in a sealed jar and keep it close while meditating in order to break free of blockages and allow the spirit to explore further than is typical or kept in the home as a form of protection magic. There are modern practitioners who may sell products such as flying ointment that claim to include the highly toxic belladonna, but the exact amount of toxic properties in these are very, very difficult to quantify. It's best to avoid products that are meant to be physically interacted with or even ingested for this reason. An extremely effective but also extremely safe alternative would be mugwort. And another common substitute is tobacco. But if you have an interest in plant-based witchcraft or herbal magic, there are numerous safer plant options worth exploring in your magical and spiritual practice. Always prioritize safety and responsibility when working with plants, especially those with toxic properties. And I want to share from the Magical Botanical Oracle. It's absolutely one of my favorite oracle decks, and this is not the first time that I've said that on this podcast. 
the plant spirit medicine of Belladonna. Belladonna's spirit is twofold. In the material realm, she helps us break the cords and lines of energy that link us to harmful people and places. Atropos severs the connection, helping restore life force and vitality when we feel we are being drained by another, particularly those with whom we have a close, loving, or even sexual relationship with. Belladonna can break the spell any toxic person in our lives might have over us that prevents us from seeing their harmful ways. With the spell broken, we can cut the cord and move onward. Belladonna helps us to make breakthroughs in our emotional growth and reach new levels. In the spirit world, Belladonna opens the sideways gates to the worlds between, not above and below, to experience the spiritual creatures right alongside us, including the fairy and elemental beings. It helps us project our psychic self into their realm and simply gives us enough spiritual light to see and commune with them. Belladonna opens a gateway into a new realm, a new breakthrough, though she also acts as a guardian of the gateway, asking if you are truly ready to step through to the other side and leave what attachments no longer serve, cutting their cords. Each step towards her, towards the gate, is the deepening of your commitment to your spirit. She holds the sickle in one hand and the forked staying in the other. She is attended by two angels of death, one on either side, holding her foliage over the gateway. The branches of Belladonna are literally a crooked path, and each flower embodies the enchantment of the stars in the darkness. The gateway itself is the gateway of the moon, and like the high priestess, she holds the gate. Beyond her are the mysteries of the witch's sabbath, as over the gateway is the goat head of the master of the sabbath and the witch's brooms that give flight to our travels. All right, time to share a spell. And then I'm going to let you go. I'm going to set you free upon this world. <laughs> uh, so I actually came across two spells that I really loved from one of my favorite tarot spell books. It's 365 Tarot Spells, Creating the Magic in Each Day by Sasha Graham. And I noticed that both of these actually include the moon as well as the star and have to do with dream work. And remember earlier I said that the only thing that I could come up with uh, as far as daylight savings goes is possibly doing some dream work since we're going to get an extra hour of sleep on Sunday. Uh, so I thought these would be appropriate. Try to get a little magic out of this super annoying, timey-wimey thing that happens twice a year. So the first one is a night visions oil that you can create uh, with the help of the star and the moon card. You will need the star, the moon, a mason jar, gardenia petals, and one cup of coconut oil. Dream oil may be added to an evening bath or dabbed on your feet before bed for rich and enigmatic dream experiences. Gardenias are known to be prophetic and beckon friendly spirits. The star reflects inspiration from above. The moon reveals unseen mysteries of the night. Place the star and the moon card together as you prep the oil. Place the petals in the mason jar and cover with coconut oil. Gently warm the oil if it's solidified so you can pour it over the petals. Look at the combination of nightscapes between these two cards. They reflect the duality of night, the light and the dark, the rejuvenating and the murky. Place the star card against your oil jar. Under a dance of stars, all things are possible. 
boundaries are erased as you move from one reality to another as easily as switching channels or opening web pages. Place the moon card against your oil jar. The moon card beckons to your sleeping self as your subconscious fills the base of the card. Unknown desires creep to the surface. Creatures emerge from the shadows to grant your bidding. Cover and let the mixture infuse in a warm place from one to six weeks, depending upon the intensity of the petals. Anoint your third eye with the oil and contemplate the star and moon card before bed or prior to nighttime rituals and magical or creative work. You can say an incantation over the oil when it's completed. Star and moon, hypnotics delight. With night vision oil, I glide into flight. Psychedelic dreams, fancy of truth, gardenias bring fun, and the joy of youth. Okay, so that is the night vision oil. And the reason why I wanted to share both of these is because they seem to really go nicely together. The other one is the dream inspiration spell, which also calls for the moon and the star card. So few things are as exciting as waking from a dream with grand insight or inspiration regarding something in your life. Journaling or meditating about our dreams in waking life causes exciting new effects in our sleeping life. Use night journeys to cultivate important information and take wild rides. See yourself inside the moon card. Stand between the towers. How is your sense of space larger and expanded in your dreams? How does your body move inside a dream? How do the scenes move in a dream? How far does your vision extend when dreaming? And how are landscapes different? With as much energy as possible, explore the moon card as if it were a dream rather than a card on the table before you. Expand the card. Now move to the star card. Feel the calm and quiet of the landscape compared to the moon card. Slip yourself as naked as she is into the pool of water. Your feet do not touch the bottom. Hold your arms above you and point your toes as you descend deeper and deeper into the cool waters of this card. The water is not dark. It glimmers with incandescent light. Let the weightlessness of your body pull you back to the surface. Break through to the air and allow her to pour the waters of inspiration all over you. Utter the incantation. Starlight, star bright, shine your sight in mine tonight. Wish I may, wish I might, feel your inspirational light. Place both cards beneath your pillow tonight. And I thought you could do that dream inspiration spell along with your night vision oil, which uh, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I'm looking, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to take me a little while because I don't have my night vision oil prepared already, um, but I'm going to get to making it. Uh, so that is all that I have for you today. Please be well and have an amazing weekend. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of A is for Agrimony, coffee-stained notes on witchcraft. If you like what you've been hearing, please drop me a review wherever you're listening. If you'd like some more content, please go to aisforagrimony.com, where you can find my blog, episode archive, spells and rituals, the living grimoire, and soon to come, the coven shop. You can follow me on Instagram at a underscore is underscore for underscore agrimony that's an underscore in between each word over on threads under the same exact handle or you can like my facebook page at facebook.com slash a is for agrimony 
Want to contact me? Shoot an email to reachmargo at aisforagrimony.com. And if you're interested in some exclusive bonus content, you can join the community over on Patreon at patreon.com slash aisforagrimony, where I share early release, unedited video format episodes, weekly collective card readings, monthly spells, occasional bonus content, and more to come. Again, thank you for listening, be well, and have an amazing weekend.